book of Revelation. Now, you know I'm going to get excited now because I'm rolling up my sleeves. This is how you know we're going to get really wound up. We are in Revelation. We are finishing the seventh of the seven churches. Next week, we will be finishing our tour in Revelation by looking at the rapture of the church. Normally, I would take you through all 21 chapters of Revelation, but I think you might pass away around chapter 15. It's a rough study, but we may come back to it someday. Just for those of you who know, oh, we're going to finish up Revelation next week. We're going to jump into the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth, which talks about the Redeemer. And that's to set us up for Christmas, because Christmas is coming, y'all. Christmas is coming, the pastor's getting fat. You know that old song, right? No, y'all don't know that song. That joke went right over your heads. Okay. I want to ask you a question. This, 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 I'm not going to say that. Anyways, let's ask you a question. Are you hot or not? Okay. This is like one of those TV shows. Are you hot or not? For all you ladies who read those fashion magazines and people and us and squirrel bait, whatever that thing is. Yeah, it's about squirrels. People who are nuts, you know, that book. Anyways, they always say, who's hot and who's not? So let me ask you a question. What things do we like hot? We need to roll that thing because we're in the wrong place. There we go. So are you hot or are you not? Let's take a temperature gauge. Let's go to the next one. What things do we like hot? Oh, we love hot chocolate in the winter, amen? Can I get a testimony? Oh, y'all hate hot chocolate. Haters, that's what I thought. No, we all love hot chocolate in the wintertime. We love hot coffee in the morning. Heck, we love hot coffee in the middle of the night. Any time is good for hot coffee. How about some hot food? I mean, a good hot bowl of soup, maybe, that you got at Pastor Ken's house last night. Oh, that was good stuff. It was not just physically hot. It was spicy hot. That's what we love hot. We love hot things, don't we? Notice we don't put people up there. That's a figment of your de-imagination. How about things we like cold? What things do we like that are cold? Ah, we love ice-cold lemonade in the summertime when you have to go outside and cut that grass because your wife says, get out and cut the grass. I solved that problem. Move to a place with no grass. You never have to cut the grass again. How about cold water? Mm, when you're really thirsty, you've been working hard, nice cold water. How about a cold towel over your head when you get a headache or you're a little fevery? You know, when Nicole was young and she would get a fever, you put that cold towel over her head. It's very soothing and very relaxing, isn't it? Makes you feel better. How about things that are not hot and not cold? What do we call those things? Lukewarm. Aha! Revelation chapter 3, 14 through 16, the last of our seven churches. God does not accept tepid souls. See, when I was young, the word lukewarm didn't exist. We said things were tepid. Tepid is when you have hot coffee and you sit it on the counter for about an hour. You come back. It's not ice cold, but it's just kind of nasty, almost hot, but not really hot. That's it. Revelation chapter 3, 14 through 16. God does not accept tepid souls. See, we like things hot or we like them cold. We like hot things because they're relaxing. We like hot things because they feel good, a hot shower. We love things that are cold because they're refreshing, they're invigorating. Uh, I went to the northern part of Michigan, and you can go to Lake Superior. Uh, Lake Superior is like 35 degrees all year round. 34, it turns to ice. It's about one degree above that. People actually get out there in the middle of winter, and this is how crazy Yankees are in the north. They get out there in the middle of winter, they strip down to their Speedos, and they jump in the water when it's 35 degrees. They're called polar bears, polar bear clubs. 
And they say it's so invigorating because the blood rushes to your skin and you feel all wonderful and warm. I think it's nuts because you give yourself a heart attack or a stroke or something. But let's talk about something that's not hot and not cold. Revelation 3, 14 through 16. You know the church already, but let's talk about it. Write to the angel of the church in Laodicea, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation says, I know your works. Here it comes. He always says that. That you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I am going to vomit you out of my mouth. Let's stop right there on that pleasant picture. What is Jesus saying to the church at Laodicea? Now look at some of the other churches we've looked at. Some of the churches had the reputation for being exciting, being alive, but inside they were stone cold dead. If you're cold, do you know you're cold? Yeah, you know you're cold. If you're outside and it's 30 degrees and you don't have a coat on, you know you feel cold, right? When you feel cold, what do you do? Come on, people, they ain't hard. If you're outside and it's cold and you, and you feel cold, what do you do? Put on a coat, yeah, yeah. You go inside and put on a coat. If you're cold, you do something about it. If you're, if you're out there in, outside and you're sweating and you're hot, what do you do? Do you just sit outside and sweat? No. You go inside and sit in front of a fan and drink something cold to cool yourself down. The problem with the church at Laodicea was they were completely oblivious. Now, I used to work at a church with a lot of people who had diabetes. And people who have diabetes suffer from a condition called neuropathy. For those of you who are not doctors and nurses, neuropathy means the little nerves in your extremities die. You literally can't sense anything. You can't feel your feet. You can't feel your fingers. You can cut yourself and not know it because you don't feel any pain. That's what neuropathy does. It makes you numb. When your feet are numb or your hands are numb, you don't know when you're in danger. You don't know if you've cut yourself and you have to treat yourself. I've known diabetic patients who will get home after a long day, take off their socks, and there's blood, and their feet are bruised or swollen, but they don't know it because they can't feel it. This church had spiritual neuropathy. They had a spiritual condition where they didn't know they were in trouble. They were very comfortable. Why? Let's look at Laodicea. Laodicea was a very wealthy city. A very wealthy city. They had one industry that produced what's called Phrygian powder. Anybody ever heard of Phrygian powder? Phrygian powder was an eye salve. You could put it on your eyes to treat eye diseases. Anybody with eye trouble went to the Laodiceans and they got this Phrygian powder. They also had an ointment for ear trouble. If you had trouble with your ears, you would go there and they had a, an ointment for that. And also, if you wanted beautiful clothing, ladies, how many of you just absolutely hate beautiful clothing? You just, you don't, you want to wear potato sacks. You want to wear something ugly. How many of you just hate fashion? That's what I thought. That's good. Okay. If you hated fashion, don't go to Laodicea. They were famous for black wool. They had the highest quality black wool in the Roman Empire. Everybody that wants sleek, shiny black wool, you went to Laodicea because that's what they had. The most beautiful clothing was made out of this black wool. So they had all these things that set them apart. In fact, they were so wealthy. Remember the earthquake we talked about that devastated two of the other churches? Remember that? Okay, the earthquake affected Laodicea as well, but Laodicea was the only city in the Roman Empire that said, no, we don't need money to rebuild the city. When the earthquake happened, 
The Romans said, hey, do you need money to rebuild your city? Well, of course you do. All your buildings are falling down. They said, no, we have enough money. We will rebuild it ourselves. Sound like anybody you ever met? Sound like most Americans, rugged, independent, don't want help, don't want to ask for help, don't want to take a handout? Sound like anybody you know? That was the attitude of the Laodiceans. They were super self-confident. Beautiful clothes, lots of money. Their doctors and eye salves and ear salves were famous throughout the empire. So they thought they had everything going on. But also the Laodiceans were famous for one more thing. We talked about this last night at Bible study. The Laodiceans were famous for being nothing. Some cities had great sin in them. Some cities had great iniquity. There was either prostitution or drugs or other types of things, rampant alcoholism in some of the cities, in some of the churches we've looked at. Now, some cities were absolutely dead. They didn't do anything. They didn't care about anyone. They were just evil. Some cities were perfect, like Philadelphia. Great martyrs. They had given all they could. They kept reaching out. Laodicea was famous because they were neither bad nor were they good. Have you ever met somebody who was nothing? Stop and think. You're not a bad person. You don't go out and drink and run around and fight and shoot people. But neither are you on fire for God. Neither do you get excited about God's graces. The testimonies we had today, that's people who get excited about what God's doing in their life. A layout of sin would never have done what you did, Miss Sharon. A layout of sin would never stand up and say how good God is, would never give God glory for bringing you through surgery. They would say, well, I pay my doctor a lot of money, and my doctor is very skillful, and because I have money to buy the best, that's why I'm healed. They would never give the glory to God for what was going on. They were completely apathetic. They were so comfortable that they didn't want to do anything to upset it. If they became super zealous Christians, well, the government might turn against them. But if they were super evil, they might feel bad about themselves. See, the Laodiceans, when they say they're lukewarm, that's just it. They were nothing. They were not extremely bad or extremely good. Can you put your finger on people in your life who are Laodiceans? They're, they're not doing anything wrong, but they're not doing anything right either. They're not actively involved in serving God or praising Him or giving Him glory. They don't do bad things, but they don't study the Word. They don't pray. They don't do anything. I'm trying to stress this because this is really the problem they had. To highlight this, I want to go to two of the scriptures that kind of talk about a similar spiritual condition. Consider James 4.8. James 4.8 says this, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, Purify your hearts, double-minded people. See, the people of Laodicea were uncommitted. They would not commit 100% to Jesus because they might miss some opportunities. They might have to make some bold statements. They might lose some friends. Right here, James is talking about the same thing. People who are double-minded are what? They're stuck between decisions. Moses called the people to make a decision. Decide who is God. Joshua said, decide this day whom you will serve, the gods of your fathers beyond the Jordan, the gods of the people here, or Yahweh himself. Elijah stood on Mount Carmel and said, for the love of God, will you people decide 
who is God. Because they couldn't decide, is it Baal? Is it Yahweh? Is it Baal? Is it Yahweh? Is it Shemash, Molech, or is it the God that my fathers talked about? The big thing that's wrong with most Christians is they are uncommitted. They are double-minded. They haven't made up their mind, I will stand for this 100%, and I will not budge. I won't do it. Now, you know why the Laodiceans were so bad? This is a good one, Ken. I didn't know this. The name Laodicea means the rights of the people. The rights of the people. The people have a right. The people have a voice. The people have their own individuality. That's what Laodicea means. The rights of the people. Well, the rights of the people was you can be whatever you want to be, and you can be whatever you want to be, and you can be something totally different, and I can be different than you, but I don't care. We all have the right to be something different. And nobody has the right to tell me there's one standard for everybody. Sound familiar, church? There's not one standard for everybody because everybody has their rights. Consider this. James 1.5. James 1.5. Still in the book of James. James 1.5. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives to all generously without criticizing, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. An indecisive man is unstable in all his ways. That's it, church. An indecisive man, the man who is not committed, the man who's not 100% on board, that's what's wrong with so many relationships in America today. People get into a relationship thinking, you know what, I'll try this out. And if he's not the best boyfriend, if she's not the best girlfriend, I'm going to bail out and run. That's the number one reason why people give for living together before marriage. I want to test the waters. I want to see if it's going to work for me. Here's the thing. The person you know before marriage and the person you know after marriage, sweetheart, let me tell you the truth, ain't the same person. Because before marriage, if you think you're going to live with somebody and know them, you're wrong. Because they're still scared you're going to take off, so they're going to be a little more kind, a little more sweet. They're willing to make your favorite food. Honey, once you've got the hook in the nose, I mean, once you've got the ring on the finger, all the bets are off. I'm not talking about my, what is this picking on my wife's stuff? She's perfect. Aren't you, dear? Anyways. Thank you very much. See, a wise woman right there. The thing these kids don't get is, if you're not decisive enough to commit to somebody before you marry them, afterwards, it's a completely different scene. That's what James keeps talking about. The doubter, the double-minded, the unstable, the indecisive. Laodiceans were not 100% in. They were comfortable just being church members. They were comfortable just sitting in a pew. They were comfortable just being in church on Sunday. But they didn't want Jesus Christ in their life on Monday or Friday night or Saturday night. They wanted God to stay in his place, Ken. Stay in your church, and I'll come see you. I'll come visit you. It's like your kids. When they come back, they want to come visit mom. But they don't want mom to come visit them. That would change their life, wouldn't it? It would change everything around. That's what was wrong with Laodicea. 
uncommitted people. And there's many people in America today and the Philippines and the Caribbean and everywhere else that we come from, there's a lot of people who are uncommitted. They're not 100% in the corner of Jesus Christ. That's why their life has no peace. You see, Larry, when you're 1,000% locked onto Jesus Christ, you know you are forgiven. If, whether it's you yelled at your wife that morning and you asked her to forgive you, you are forgiven. you got to cut that thing loose. You burned your husband's dinner. So what? He'll get over it. It's okay. The number one thing that ties people down is we carry guilt. If God does forgive us, if God pushes our guilt as far as the east is from the west, that's a shackled burden that keeps you from living for God. It keeps you weighed down. But if that burden's gone, church, what keeps you from being zealously, passionately in love with God? Why is it most Christians walk around looking like Jesus died and never got up from the grave? Why does that happen? Because we are indecisive, we are unstable, we are double-minded, we are lukewarm. We're saved, but only just saved. Let's press on. You see, God doesn't accept tepid souls. No woman would accept a man who was a third committed to her. No woman would accept a man who was halfway committed to her. Ladies, I'm talking, don't accept a man unless he's 105% committed to you no matter what. That's the level of commitment that you need to make things work in life. Revelation 3, 17 and 19 continues this. Why does God not accept tepid souls? Because tepid, tepid minds are deceived minds. If you are tepid, you are deceived. Understand that. If you have no passion for Christ, if you can be a Christian today and tomorrow fade into the woodworks, if you can be a karma chameleon, as it were, changing all your little colors, not that I'm hinting at anything we're saying, but I'm just saying, if you can do that, you've got an issue. Press on. It says this in verse 17. Because you say, I am rich, I have become wealthy, and I need nothing, and you don't know that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked, that's embarrassing, I advise you to buy from me, God says, refined, gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich, white clothes so you may be dressed, and your shameful nakedness not be exposed, and ointment to spread on your eyes that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and I discipline, so be committed and repent. That's an interesting statement. Does anybody see why that's important? Back up one to the main passage of that body. Just see something. Because you say I am rich, remember, very wealthy, large banking industry, you have become wealthy and need nothing. What does Jesus say about that? Without me, you can do what? Most things? Some things. Without me, you can do nothing. You can't do squat. I, I think it was pretty brave this morning. Charles Stanley was on. He said, guys, stop griping at President Obama. He says, President Obama is not in office because he had a better campaign. President Obama is in office because God put him there. Whether to punish and chastise us or to bless us is not our concern. He is there because God put him there. He says, don't sweat the next election. The person God wants to be in office will be in office and will do everything God has foreseen. So don't worry about it. Stay faithful to God. Keep your focus on him. 
There have been some pastors the last week that really made me angry. They took one hour on a Sunday morning and they talked about politics in church. Man, why would you waste God's hour, an hour that was built for redemption, for reclaiming lost souls, for firming up those who were suffering? Why would you waste that on something as useless as politics? Now, there's a place and a time for political discussions. I don't put it down. It's important, but not this hour, not when you're in God's house, not when you're dealing with human souls and with eternity. So he says this. He says, you become rich. I, I am wealthy. I need nothing. First of all, right there, you're deceived. You're deceived if you think money gives you anything. And you don't know that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. This word wretched is important. The word wretched means one devastated by a war. The picture is this. You have a beautiful mansion. You have cars. You have your, your spouse, husband, or wife. You have your children. You have your bank account. And your life is easy, and you need to worry about nothing. Then a war comes in your, in your area, and it devastates everything. Your house is burned down. Your wife or husband is killed. Your children are murdered. Your gold is stolen. You have absolutely nothing. You are pitiful, poor, blind, and naked because a war devastates everything. He says, you people lay out a sea and think you have everything. But the truth is, you have nothing. Look what he says. If I, I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. They had gold made by men, but that gold was temporary. The gold of Christ is the gold of wisdom, the gold of his presence, the gold of his spirit, something that cannot be taken or lost. He says, that you may be rich. White clothes. Now, what's important about white clothes? We looked a couple weeks ago. It means what? Purity. It means you're dressed in Christ's righteousness. But it's also the opposite from the black wool made by the Laodiceans. The black wool was very chic and very beautiful and very expensive, but it was nothing compared to the white clothing that means we are dressed in the righteousness of Christ. Can you see how the people of Laodicea were deceived? He says that you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness would not be exposed. An ointment that you can spread on your eyes so that you can see. Right there, Jesus is driving a stake in the heart of everybody who lived in Laodicea. Because the Phrygian powders, that eye ointment or the ear ointment that treated everything to do with those organs, that was sold all over the Roman Empire. They were famous. If you have any eye trouble, come to Laodicea and we'll fix you. Jesus says... You have eye ointment, but you're blind. You have the best wool, but you're naked. He says, you have all this money sitting around, all this metal, but you are poor because you have nothing toward God that counts. That's America, church. That is America today. People have money, and they have clothes, and they have cars, and they have homes. We have expensive doctors, and some of us have plastic surgery, but that's okay. We won't talk about that. Whatever it is you think you have, without a burning, passionate, abiding love affair with Jesus Christ, you have nothing. You have nothing that matters. What's worse is you're so blinded by the world standard, you can't even see that you're naked. Remember the emperor's, the emperor's clothing, the, the little children's book? You know, the, 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 the sneaky guy says, oh, king, I've got this fabric so beautiful you can't even see it. Ooh, see it? And he, he, he takes all this money and makes the emperor some new clothing of this fantastic material. And everyone says, oh, yeah, it's beautiful. And the emperor's walking around naked, you know. 
That's how we are. We're walking around naked and we don't even know it. Because the only thing that covers us is the righteousness of Christ, not going to church and sitting there. Now, guys, remember this. He is not addressing this to non-Christians. This letter is not written to the unbeliever. It is written to believers who are deceived into putting their confidence in their wealth and their possessions instead of their walk with Christ. This is not something you give to your unsaved neighbor and say, unsaved neighbor, see, you're naked. They're not naked. They've always been naked. They have worse problems than that. This is for Christians who don't get it, who they are in Christ. That's what's so important. They had a counterfeit wealth that left them with nothing. Let's finish this up. Revelation 3, 20 through 22. Victory leads to great honor. Okay, so we say that, okay, God does not accept tepid souls. He wants passion. He wants fire. He wants us to live and breathe for him. Because to a tepid mind is a deceived mind. Well, if we're not deceived, then we have victory, which leads to great honor. That's been kind of the theme all the way through these seven churches, right? Look at what it says. Listen, I stand at the door and knock. Y'all underline it. That's where this verse comes from. This is the verse, oh, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you open, I will come in to you. That's used at every evangelistic meeting I know. Here's the problem. This is not an evangelism verse. This is a wake-up church verse. This verse is not for pagans. It's not for the godless. It is for believers who have grown cold in God's service. He says, GGCF, I'm at the door knocking. I want to come in. I want to have a passionate vibrant, on-fire relationship with you. But you know what? This says the door is locked from the inside, from our side. We're locking him out by saying, you know what? Lord, you require too much. You want me to get up there and act like Pastor Stidham and be a raving lunatic. First of all, don't, don't be like me. One of me in the world is far too many. But each of you is called to be something unique. You know, the young professionals, they just went through a spiritual gift inventory and they saw who they are, their unique gifts, their unique abilities. And they're going to begin to seek ways to use those gifts. But each of us have those gifts. We each have something special. And the world can't take that away. Can't take it away from you. Okay? The world can make you feel bad about it, can make you feel trapped in the past, can make you feel restricted by some mistake in the past. But you know what? Whom Christ has set free, they are free in Indeed. Look at this. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anybody hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him. I will have dinner with him and he with me. This is the most intimate picture in the ancient Near East. To go into a man's house and eat with him was an act of really great intimacy because he is risking allowing you into his house. He is exposing his wife or, or husband or children or grandparents to you. He is exposing his world to you. This is the greatest act of trust that you can have to invite someone into that intimate act of eating together. In fact, if an enemy came to your house and came into your house, you couldn't kill him till he was outside. Once he was in your house, he was under your protection. If somebody wanted to hurt your enemy and they came into your house, you let him in, you had to protect them even though you don't like them. Because the law of hospitality was, when you're in my house, you're my guest, you're under my protection. That's a huge act of intimacy. Asking Christ into every room, every hidden closet, 
every place where we hide the dirty laundry. That's why the people of Laodicea didn't do it. It was too intimate. To let God into the details, that's transforming. That changes us. It says, the victor, I will give him the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also won the victory and sat down with my father on the throne. Anyone who has an ear, anyone who is capable of understanding this, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. These seven letters given to seven, seven types of churches, seven types of believers. And it's so critical that we see the, dif the difference. When a church grows complacent, when they grow comfortable, when they do neither nothing wrong nor nothing good, Christ bangs at the door of the church wanting them to wake up. That is why when Martin Luther posted his 95 theses, his 95 gripes against the church, he went to the door of the church and posted it so that everybody going in the church could see these questions. Is it right to sell entrance to the kingdom of heaven? Is it right to give men the place of God in our lives? Those are the things he posted. He did it to wake up the church to what was wrong. And today, Christ wants us to wake up to what might be wrong in our own lives, in our personal lives, as well as in our church life. It's so important. So I ask you the question, church. Are you hot or not? Okay, are you hot or not? Gentlemen, what man among us has not, in a moment of watching sports and being totally enraptured by the Meekum Auto Auction, which captivates me for hours, has not had their wife walk in front of them and go, do I look hot or not? <laughs> it happens. Gentlemen, I can tell you, 100% of the time, I know what you said. You're hot, baby. You never took your eyes off the car on the block, but you said it anyways. Because to say anything else would mean you sleep outside. But I mean, I heard this week someone say this. Don't be surprised, gentlemen, when your wife says, am I hot? Because even though you've told her a thousand times that you love her and you, you, you just adore her, there will never come a day when she doesn't want to hear it again. So there should never come a day when you don't ask yourself, where is my thermostat? Where is my temperature gauge? Am I on fire for Christ? Am I excited for him? Or have I grown cold and complacent and I'm willing to let somebody else do the work? Look at this. Is there no room in your Christian, there is no room in your Christian walk for apathy or indifference? That's true. There can't be a place for you to say, you know what, it doesn't matter. It's not important to me. I'll let somebody else make that decision. No. If you're going to be a Christian, you've got to be lit up on those issues that deal with the kingdom of heaven and your walk with the Lord. Two, take a look at your life. Is your righteousness founded in Christ or your status and possessions? I asked the young professionals, I said, how happy are you with your life? Scale of one, meaning I want to go jump off a bridge. Ten, meaning I feel like you, Pastor Stan. I'm just kidding. No. One to ten, how happy are you with your walk with Christ? I won't tell you their answers. That's privileged knowledge. But let's just say there was a span in there. There was a span of how contented they were. I said, if you're here at a four or five or six, that tells you something's wrong. And it tells you you need to look at where's your passion? Where are you at? Because if you're not using your spiritual gifts, if God is not using you for what he built you for, then of course you're not going to be content. You can be the wealthiest, most prosperous, 
most beautiful, most muscular. You can be whatever it is that you think defines success. But if you're not serving God passionately, I guarantee there's a hole in your life. And you feel it every day. You feel that cold wind blowing up out of the abyss. And you know there's something missing. And Christian, it's because you are not on fire for the God who saved you. That's what's missing. That's what's not there. Finally, do you hear or have you ever heard the knock of the Savior calling you to accept him? Now, I said in, in this book of Revelation, that is the call for the church to wake up. But you know, there's also a time in our lives, that first time, when we receive the call of God to come to salvation in the first place. Maybe you feel like there is a hole in your life. And it's not because you're not serving God. It's because you don't know him. You've never said, you know what, Lord, I am a sinner. I have rebelled against you. And I am empty, and I am tired of being empty, and I need you to come into my life. Forgive me of my sins, and give me a hope and a future. If you've never accepted Christ as Savior, if you've never made that decision, then today is the day that you can do that. But only God can prompt you and move you in that direction. If you want to talk about that after the service, we can do that. We have all lunch until 1 o'clock when we're going to have our family discipleship. And we can talk about it at bowling, too, if you want to go bowling. We can do it then. But I ask you guys to consider all these things. Because the church of Laodicea is probably the most prevalent church in America today. Of all the churches we've looked at, of the Ephesian churches, of the Philadelphian churches, the Smyrna churches, this is probably the one that is most dangerous. Because there's nothing wrong in your life. But there's also nothing right in it. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day. Lord, thank you that you challenge us to examine our walk with you. Father, you ask us to see where our passion level is, Father, to check the temperature gauge of our life and to know how excited we are to be your people, how much we see your hand at work in our life, how much we enjoy the opportunity to simply speak your name or share a testimony of your goodness. God, I know that there are times when we get tired. And Father, we do get worn down. And in those times you come to us and you build us up and you make us strong and, and you lead us back. Now, Father, if we have grown cold, if we've grown indifferent, if we become too tired, Lord, let today be a wake-up call. Let it be a day when you re-excite that fire within us. Lord, the Word of God says that you are a consuming fire. Father, consume us and light us on fire for you that we might shine your glory to a world that needs it. In Jesus' name, amen. As the worship team sings and prays, This month is Pastor's Appreciation Month. So before we, um, uh, we, we uh, end our service, we would like to uh, appreciate um, the Lord for giving us uh, three pastors to guide 